Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Tavern Talk. Here we take a break from it all and talk all things AI, Web3, and gaming with titans in the industry. I'm your host, David Johansson, creator of Block Lords and founder, CEO of MetaKing Studios and Seascape Network. Today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic, game economies. What are they? How do they work? How do we break them? And most importantly, how do we fix them? With me today, I have a very special guest for this first pilot episode, Philip Black from Game Economist Consulting. Is that the right name? Did I yeah, it, it's very literal. <laughs> it's all about search engine optimization. There you go, there you go. And you, you kind of nailed that because you, you're the first thing that comes up, right? I think that's my like proudest accomplishment is like being a Google ranking as a business. I feel like that's just good brand marketing. It reinforces itself. Definitely. And how, how did you get into game economies? <sighs> mistake after mistake after mistake. <laughs> I, uh, I went to college to study economics was super fascinated with it and when you get into economics you end up like moving up the chain in terms of understanding and asking more and more probing questions about how all of this is put together it seems almost like magic that these models come together and that seem to tell us something interesting so like what happens when we start to probe those questions more so i got involved in like economic methodology how do we know what we know like the source of knowledge and I figured that that was far too impractical and far too boring, at least for now. And so then I ended up doing consulting as like a normal consultant okay. in Washington, D.C. for a little bit. But that was oh, about wow. as much fun as watching paint dry. <laughs> Politics at all or just, uh, uh, just business? Just, just business. It turns out that the United States government has a particular regulation that mentions a particular amount of money that if an estimated project costs, it has to go through a cost-benefit analysis. Mm. And so that's employed like an army of economists <laughs> in Washington, D.C. It's one of the single biggest employers of economists in the United States, oh, wow. second only to Amazon. <laughs> uh, I think the, la the last I checked. Uh, but, you know, that, that was a lot of fun. But I ended up spending more time thinking about games when I was in that job than I was thinking about economic policy. And so I looked around, and there was only one other person that seemed to be doing this. There's this guy named Giannis. Okay who was an economist at Valve. He was hired by Gabe, the founder of Valve itself, and he had read one of his books and said, look it, we have very interesting economies happening at Valve. Can you please take a look at what's going on? And Valve, unlike all these other companies, was doing real money auction mm. houses. So you could go in, and for many of these games, you could buy and sell cosmetics on an open marketplace. You could place buy orders and sell orders. Like, I would buy an item at $200. And so you had a very primitive economy with a price, an equilibrium price. Around what year was this, just for the audience? I believe it was around 2011. Don't quote me on this. Okay. He ends up going on to become the Greek finance minister during the Eurozone oh, wow. crisis. <laughs> so, so it's pretty ironic that he started at Valve. And of course, like he only has two blog posts about his time there, which is really annoying. Mm. It's like your friends who like travel and they just like do two. They set up a, a custom blog, but they only post about like two times. They yeah. you know they're traveling. But it's great around. those two times. Yeah, it's great those two times. The pictures are wonderful and the, the posts are great. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he hasn't spoken a lot about it, but that led me to join Scopely in Los Angeles, worked on some very interesting 4X games, worked on a Breaking Bad game, worked a little bit on a game called WWE Champions, which was interesting, and then went to Sweden to join DICE, wow. which is why, where we're podcasting from, getting citizenship this year. Live from Stockholm. <laughs> well, not live, but from Stockholm. Live, Semi-live from Stockholm. It's actually beautiful here. It's never, it's never warm here, and it finally is another beautiful summer. I only remember the first time I came here having a summer that was as bright as this. This is what you live yeah, for now. Definitely. <laughs> well, 
Seems like we have a few more of them coming, yep. essentially, sadly enough. But before we move on to DICE, mm. uh, kind of interested, how was that transition from traditional economics to gaming? Did Was that hard for you? Did you plan it for a long time? Because a lot of people have a, problems getting their first gaming job, so I'm kind of curious on that. Look, I think economics is a set of tools to help solve problems, and it, it gives you a model to think about any sort of problem with, and that's why it's been so successful in invading other areas of academia and just growing as a trusted field too to mm. government advisors. Like economists are frequently cited in newspapers. Like they have a source of credibility, yeah. which I think is really interesting. I think there comes something with the word economist. Um, but at the end of the day, like those set of tools that you can apply to like crime or things that you can apply to history or biology, like economists study biology now. We have a lot of game theory that came directly from economics mm. that can predict or at least explain a lot of how populations evolve. And so you take these assumptions of economics and you can apply them to games. And it does take a little while to adjust your model. Mm. It does take time to think about like the particular institutions of gaming and why they're organized the way they are. Yeah. Like, why is it that free to play is so popular? I mean, can yeah. you imagine like another software service that runs like who's giving away free movies, free yeah. to play movies? <laughs> Or there are ads. It's yeah. a very rare strategy. Maybe you'll get one on YouTube. But that's certainly not like the primary form of distribution. So like, how could we apply those same insights to games? Was kind of what led me down this path. And I think I think economics fits naturally into this. Mm. And it's become more natural as games have become more live service. There's more meat to kind of analyze. Yeah, and Scopely were one of the really early Western companies to to fully embrace free to play and and put it with big IPs. Right. Totally. I think the thing that. I would take away from my time at Scopely is that they understood not only the revenue side of the business, but they had a very keen sense to understand the user acquisition part of the business. Mm. And they were out signing huge IPs for a really long time. You look at a franchise like Dice with Buddies, which is just Yahtzee, yeah. but without the brand, it ended up doing really well. And then they acquired the brand and developed an incredible relationship with Hasbro. Yeah. Like great for them. And they saw those results down funnel. Like it yeah. was much easier to acquire users with a brand than being no name. I mean, we, this makes sense. Why do yeah. people buy Oreos rather than like, you know, chocolate cookies at the supermarket? Yeah, exactly. And then this is something that I realized as well, uh, working in Asia with uh, free to play publishers and, and developers. And uh, th th that's the thing. Once you really fully embrace the user acquisition, aggressive user acquisition strategies, there's really uh, enormous potential. So yep. it was and those companies in the West that embraced that early on have kind of come out as winners, yep. right? Uh, Web3, this message is for you. <laughs> Can you please embrace user acquisition? This is your number one problem. Well, <laughs> like, stop stop messing around with token prices and get serious about getting users. Well, I can tell you, as someone who's <laughs> heavily into uh, this space, uh, everyone's trying, but it's yeah. extremely hard to get it done for some reason. But, but it doesn't even appear to be at the top of the priority st uh, stack in terms of what Web3 is trying to solve right now. And they've been given a lifeline. They've been yeah. given Epic Game Store hold on tight yeah. like what you have right now is five percent of normal games distribution as a platform that's exactly. it that's a pretty tough place to launch a revolution from and that's what's been claimed that's all gabe is giving <laughs> us right <laughs> please gabe if you're listening to this uh, open it up uh, yeah I, I agree we that's been our core focus you know with block lawyers is how do we reach as many users as possible which can be a little challenging with a pc you know rts game but we're still wanting to make it as open and accessible to as many as possible i i do think the industry is working on it but there's this main challenge which is how do you keep that access to liquidity which is really important for web3 gaming i'm sure you're going to disagree about that <laughs> while abstracting away the the tough parts that actually gives you away access to that liquidity does that does that make sense 
It, it does, but at the end of the day, you're given a set of constraints you don't have autonomy over. Yeah. Like Apple controls, you know, 67% of mobile spend. You have to play by their rules and you have to adapt. And if you feel like, you know, you can do this on browser, like all the more power to you. But like browser's been dead for a really long time. Yeah. Like browser's not coming back, guys. Like there has been Web2 attempts to do HTML5 games. They've yeah. failed. This is a really tough place to be. If you aren't going to play by the platform's rules and you can't get adoption by the platforms, you aren't going to win. You're not going to launch a new app store. Like that is going to be incestuous amongst the people who are already into NFTs. You need to broaden your audience and broaden your usability. And if you don't abide by these platforms' rules or you can't figure out how to fit yourself into them, like you're actually you you are not going to be in control of the situation. I hate to break it to you, Web three. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to play by other people's rules. And even if we disagree with them, and a lot of them are stupid, mm. Apple has a lot of really dumb rules. I agree. Mm. At the end of the day, it, it, this is this is about power. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have it in this situation. So the question is. Is there a way to play by those rules while still providing the access to that liquidity, which has kind of driven Web3 to the to the length or to the heights it is now? Yeah, welcome to 30% IEP tax. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you're going to have to swallow that pill. Yeah. We have in free-to-play gaming. It sucks, but we were still able as a mobile mobile part of the industry to overcome that 30% and eventually become one of the, like the largest shares of, of mobile game yeah. revenue. And just be clear, like that... 30% cut still exists on HD, by the way. Steam charges 30%. There is this inverse marginal tax thing they do, which is interesting, but they they largely charge 30%. But yeah, like you got to eat that. Like web, web is gone, baby. I don't yeah. tell you. <laughs> no, my feeling is most studios are open to to absorbing the 30% tax. Mm. Where it gets a little trickier is, is there a tax between the value exchange between two players, right? And who pays that tax? If the developer becomes responsible for that tax, but the player actually earn something, then that becomes a little trickier. And I think that's that's what most people have been struggling with. And there hasn't been like an open dialogue between the industry and the, the platforms. I do think there's been some resolution there, but that definitely what it's going to take is a breakaway game, right? That drives enough users, that drives enough volume, that drives enough demand where the big platforms come to the table and actually negotiate for real. When has that ever happened, though? When has that ever happened in like Web2 gaming? Mm. Like, you think like a single game is gonna like dictate terms? Like, that's <laughs> that's really not how this has worked. You know, I will like concede that a lot of the ways that platforms get started was having a hit game mm. that was able to scale. And I do think this is time for Web3 to show that. Yeah, It is time to say like, okay, what is the height of this experience? What does mm. it look like? And I think you have one example right now, which is so rare, but that's not exactly what people are thinking about. They're thinking yeah. about like these AAA experiences. Like Star Atlas is very, High definition 3D experience. Mm. When love, people learn about it, they think it was going to be like more space RTS stuff or more like yeah. Eve, and it's it's not. It's not at all like Eve. Mm. It's actually a lot more like No Man's Sky in many yeah. regards. But those things look impressive, but they aren't always what drives revenue and what what mm. drives sales. Like let's just examine BattleBit, which just came out on Steam. Like yeah. it's, it's voxel based <laughs> bullshit, and yeah. you know I, I think there's a lot of room that that Web three has to go in like figuring all of this out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I still say we're very early. You know, I know it's a meme. I know people <laughs> people abuse it quite a lot. We are still early. And, and I do think that the space has had to deal too much with infrastructure issues, too much with just figuring things out and not enough on the games themselves and on increasing the stickiness of the games. So we're still very much in the middle. I don't want to go too deep into that because I no, know you're very- That's fair, but let me let me just hit you up with yeah. one thing. And, and, and maybe it can be a rhetorical question, <laughs> but like the, the thing everyone wants to be, is, is interested in mm. is when is it not going to be early? Is that in yeah. two years? Is that in three years? Is that in five years? Like, when should I wake up and pay attention to this? Just, like, let me know. Give me a call. Like, do we think this is three years out? Because right now, 
what we've seen in a year is very little progress yeah. in terms of solving like major platform problems. You've got onto EGS, that was a win, that's something. Yeah. You seem to have like some things like the IMX wallet, but there still yeah. is so much to go that you know you're looking at a pace yeah. based on prior information of what you know I, we're looking at five yeah. years. I think my my honest answer is it's when there is a breakaway game with you know a million okay. DAU, and that that okay. that could take a year, yep, that could yep. take five years, it yep. could take ten years, you know, and. I'd say a lot of the mistakes that I'm seeing is people are trying to emulate what works in Web 2 and then put a Web 3 spin on it, right? And that's never going to be enough to really drive drive someone to go through extra hoop or to make things complicated. Mm. So it either has to be completely unique in terms of gameplay, but familiar enough that people actually want to play it with an economic incentive for whether it's the whales, whether it's the, the, the KOLs who drive it, whether it's the fish who just keep it going, there has to be some financial incentive and access to liquidity that makes the Web3 element actually de desired, right? Rather than just tacked on. And obviously that's something we're working on with our game. How long it's gonna take, I don't know, because it, it is an extremely ambitious project. And so let me let me ask you about this because I'm frustrated about this because I hear this a lot from crypto. What what exactly was broken with the old model that Web three solves? Is it just an additive value? Is that it? But like, what was broken that they're solving? I'd say it's access to liquidity with in game uh, in game assets. Which yes, there was some for uh, you know Steam. Uh, you, you know way more examples yeah. than me. Uh, yes, there have been auction houses that have worked and that still work. The access to liquidity was just not as prevalent and and not as uh, euphoric, I would say, <laughs> as as it has been in Web three, which yes, in some ways isn't sustainable, but is extremely exciting, <laughs> you know. So so I do think that's what's missing is is this idea. I, ha I have a few more theses that I'm okay. that I'm working okay. on. I know you're a thesis guy, so <laughs> give me a few hours throughout this podcast to, to work it through. That sounds great. But essentially, for me. What's missing is is a fair distribution between community and uh, the the dev studio and the publisher, essentially, right? And uh, this is something I've talked about a lot in spaces and podcasts and such. But essentially, you know, you have this model where the devs, the the publishers are paying for ads. They're paying pretty ridiculous amounts. But you know, I mean, you know that in yep. Web two as well, UA is getting kind of broken. It's enormously broken. It's drive it drives everything right now. Yeah, and and so that 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 that's what brought me to have these ideas about how do you get a game that attracts whales? Because at the end of the day, you want whales, right? These are the power spenders. These are the people who love your game. They're spending the majority of their lifetime maybe in your game. They're spending a lot of money, and they want status. They want power. And how do they get that? Well, they need you need to you need your game to attract a lot of smaller users. You know, fish. If we want to use a bad word. And those users are actually the cannon fodder of your game. They're spending a lot of time. They're spending a lot of their uh, their souls, right? Or, or they're spending a lot of their energy into your game. But actually, they they don't get that feeling of power or status by the publishers. They get frustrated. You know, they get they get thrown these little hoops that they have to overcome, but they don't have the means to overcome them. You know, I know there are different free to play models. Not all of them use that. So essentially what I think Web3, my idea was, okay, we're spending all this money on user acquisition. How could we incentivize the smaller players to play the game for the whales who fight each other? You know, and this is something that you kind of see in EVE Online, which was a, a big inspiration for everything I'm doing. 
but but it's not a very solid answer and i'm sure you're going to pick a hundred holes in it but essentially it's this idea of how do you create online digital economies that have access to liquidity and that have actual economic incentives that flow for different types of players different ways that's my very long answer no i i i think there's something to that but i guess what i would take aim at is whether or not there's such thing as a fair distribution like what does that mean the distribution beforehand was that players got a very entertaining product yeah. like that is that is the real value that they're getting and when we talk a lot about play to earn economics and fixing that distribution giving them their fair share what value were they generating to begin with like the number of cents a given user brings in mm. as an example on a ad impression is measured by the thousands Hmm. It's measured by the thousands. ECPMs is a metric by the thousands. So when you see like six cents, that's six cents per thousand impressions of a given hmm. ad. So any given user is not that valuable when you consider what they bring in in terms of ad yeah. revenue. Spenders are obviously valuable, but hmm. like those users are not that valuable. And the question is, well, are there network effects? Are there yeah. effects to them just joining the system? Like you hmm. would have like a Facebook or a Twitter yeah. trying to build up, you know, hmm. these these kind of institutions. I, I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, I do think you have an answer to that, though. This is why, like, I do think Blocklords is the most interesting stab at this beyond Sorare, which hmm. is that you're trying to use the model and the feeling of powder. A lot of things that come out of 4X design yeah. that is consistent with the idea of stakes, consistent with a lot of the things that we saw in EVE in terms of like thinking about that this is a job, but but feeding a larger organization. Yeah. It was about coordination. It's about how agents interact and sometimes they interact with like the price system. Like that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder from a broader perspective, how big is that market? If we have to sign up for all these constraints to make it work, it's gotta be PVP. It's gotta have all these different elements for it to be like a true blockchain game. Yeah. No. I agree, and I think we're sol we're working on solving a lot of those things, and we're doing it one step at a time. Because the the game you know we're envisioning with Blocklords is uh, on a massive scale, right? yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, similar to an Eve Online, essentially. You know that 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 is a big inspiration. Uh, but at the end, at at the bottom, you know, it starts really at the bottom, which is we need farmers who just enjoy farming. Uh, for the sake of farming to amass resources that and maybe then those resources are going to benefit other people who prefer to go fighting, who prefer to go ruling, who prefer to go politics. I won't turn this into a block lords ad, uh, even though I'm sure we'll have a bunch of them in the middle of this podcast. But uh, uh, let, let, I want to go back a little bit about okay. your story and we'll get back to uh, debating Web3 very soon. But uh, essentially, when you got into DICE, how did you see the difference between you know pure free to play with premium uh, premium gameplay? I think Dice in particular was dealing with like a lot of challenges. I would say that the enormous change immediately was just thinking about team size. And normally you think about it, there's this term HD, which is an electronic arts term I learned on Twig. Laura helped point this out to me, uh, one of the co-hosts, that, that that's a very particular term. But I'm just referring to like PC and console games when we talk about HD. So I would say like coming from mobile to HD, the first thing that immediately blew my mind was team sizes. You know, you're looking at team of maybe 30 on mobile, like mm -hmm. that's a pretty hefty size fully live ops game, maybe around 30, but in the incubation stage, maybe around 10, yeah. uh, it can be, be a lot smaller. And then you go to these games like Battlefield, you're talking about thousands of people to put them yeah. together. It's unbelievable the amount of labor it takes to build out a high yeah. definition game. You're like, where does the cost come from? And it turns out going 3D has all these hidden costs yeah. that you might not have expected. Oh, wow, there's a there's a lighting department. Yeah. There's a whole lighting department just to look at like shadows and yeah. how things reflect. And like that has to be optimized because it has a big effect on the game. 
So I would say like a lot of it was just thinking about how these things are made. And I yeah. think the other half was monetization, of course. Yeah. And DICE had been in a place where they pioneered a lot of expansion packs, mm. DLC packs, selling more maps, selling more classes, selling yeah. more guns. They were doing it on a regular basis. They sold a premium pass, mm. which you could get at the point of sale for an additional $30, entitled you to a stream of DLC content, which was yeah. pretty interesting. It's like a limited time pass. Which game did they start that with? Oh, boy. I think this goes back to... Even beyond two? Battlefield 2. I mean, Battlefield 2, the original PC version, they were doing a lot of DLC content. Yeah. I think it wasn't until Battlefield 3 that premium mm. was really introduced. Yeah, I I think remember they had a web client, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Bad Company. They didn't have that much stuff in yet. N- no, no, they didn't. I remember it's usually, like, who's really the developer of the <laughs> game. Like, you know, who's, there, there was a couple families involved in the, yeah. the production of, of Battlefield. Um, but you knew, you knew that, like, the pure, the pure Dice ones had certain <laughs> tech pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, interesting. And then uh, what happened after DICE? Where, where, where did you move to then? I had a great time at EA. I was able to work on a bunch of different projects. I was able to work on EA Originals. I was able to work on this game called Knockout City for a little bit, just mm. like looking in very briefly at them, kind of helping move them along the EA process, and they were fantastic. They're a studio called um, Velen, which is in Troy, New York, of all places. Okay. But incredible developer. They also have this Mario Kart game, which is wonderful. Uh, big, big fans of them. But I decided to join Amazon Game Studios. And yes, Amazon does make games. And <laughs> they were trying to figure out about some key products that they have in their pipeline. What is the next step from a strategy perspective? You know, Do we need someone to help figure this out? And marketplaces sometimes came up as a topic for them. Mm. And that's a place I think an economist can add a lot of value, as well as yeah. just the general economy stuff. Well, that's interesting. And you mentioned Amazon earlier as the biggest employer of uh, economists uh, in the world, right? (laughs) Or in the U.S. at least. And uh, did you see that in their game processes as well? No, I would say like they're still trying to figure it out. It's hard to get PhD PhDs to sign yeah. up for this. They're still they're still kind of poking around. Mm. They haven't signed up for the creed yet. Yeah. A- in many cases, the economists are still trying to figure it out. Mm. And so I th- I would say there are a lot of people with economics training yeah. and we were trying to get more in the pipeline, but I would say as an industry we're seeing a lot of this. Mm. So to give you an example, there is a wonderful economics team over at Activision which okay. talks a lot about the economics of Call of Duty mm. and we also see one uh, there, there was one over at Blizzard. Um, so we've seen some like key studios hire game economists in a more full-time capacity role. I worked with some people that were called data scientists but had PhD in economics when I was at EA in the data science department. So they are around, and Roblox is just hiring a new team, which is really interesting as well. Mm. So we're, we're getting there. The numbers are rising. Yeah, because they have that whole element of user-generated content, too, that, that adds a lot. So, I mean, you, you mentioned something interesting about the data analysis part because I know you, you had some data an, uh, analysis roles as well. Uh, where do, do the lines blur between economists and data analysts? Or oh, of course, work? of course. I would say the the data analytics piece is great. You also learn how the sausage is made doing data analytics as your first step. Like there's a lot of sausage that <laughs> needs to be produced for empirical evidence. You know, it is something that actually imposes quite a large cost if mm. you're trying to turn to this. It's going to take time to produce answers. It's yeah. usually nothing that you can just look at the surface and solve something with. It's usually an indicator or a warning sign. Then you need to do the deep dive. Theory can be a lot faster. But as a data analyst, you get to say, okay, well, what is the actual effect here? I'm trying to figure out what things move KPIs. You're really trying to understand that causal inference of like, okay, I did a thing. I see a result. How big was that result? How yeah. can we think about attribution? Okay, we ran a live ops event and revenue increased, but we also ran a sale at the same time. Is that something that made sense? Did we make money coming out of this? How could we think about this and measure this? You're really focused on that key question. How can we measure this? Yeah. 
that we, we've been working on our own data, data analytics pipeline uh, at Medicaid, and it really is tricky, right? Because do you start with the questions or do you start with the raw data? And usually it's both at the same time, and the questions usually aren't the same as what the data shows, you know? So It's a conversation. I exactly. think it's a conversation, and you go back and forth. I will say, I think you got to, the, the theory is always there, whether we acknowledge it or not, because you still have a theory of measurement when you're yeah. pulling data. You're still saying, okay, I'm going to pull an average of this metric. Okay, why are you pulling an average of this metric? You could pull an average of a million metrics. Mm. You could pull the 95th standard deviation yeah. of a metric. You could do all these different things. You still have like a theory when you put together even just data. Yeah. That is something I always try to drive home and, and data organizations I've worked at or try to embody. Yeah. And so following uh, Amazon, you moved on to Game Economies Consulting. Yeah, I'm, I'm solo, baby. There you go. <laughs> I'm solo, baby. How does that now feel? I got the hot takes. Yeah. Uh, un uncensored. Un <laughs> uh, uncensored. It's all up to you, right? It's all. There's no PR department. No, no PR department. Uh, I'm a one-man show right now, but it's been a lot of fun working with a lot of different companies. Not just like on exclusively monetization stuff, but thinking about a game thesis, thinking mm. about some broader questions about this industry and how we can help different teams, thinking about things like scale a lot more, building tools, uh, practical experiments you can run in a lot of games, just a lot of things that I never thought I'd revisit. But, you know, it all comes back to like accumulating knowledge. Like that's yeah. what's really fun right now is I'm accumulating a lot of knowledge and seeing what works and what doesn't in a lot of different settings. Amazing. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're on so many projects right now. So too many. Yeah. Does, does it get overwhelming at times or? Oh, man, it's 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 way too much. Uh, I don't think that this is sustainable at all. You know, I, you focus you at least you read a lot of people who do consulting as well. Like yeah. I'm a big fan of Eric Seifert, mm. who you might know, who is a huge voice in user acquisition. Mm. Writes a really ton of exciting and awesome pieces. He makes a lot of what seem like simple and obvious points, but everyone else misses them. And he reminds everyone like, yeah, do your homework. Like this is what the policy actually says. Let's follow through the implications. But he's someone who, who's given me some good advice, but like, yeah, you got to have a little hustle to do this. It's, it can be a blast, uh, but you got to have hustle. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for joining this podcast, you know, Tavern Talks, first one. And I think let's go straight into the meat. So, okay. so you kind of brushed over it, but let's let's just try as simple as possible. What is a game economy? So when I think about like the definition of economics, and there usually is one that has some consensus around it, it was by an economist named Lionel Robbins. And I believe this was in the 1920s. He was at the LSE at the time. He defined economics, and this is a rough a rough quotation, so don't don't <laughs> burn me on this. But something along the lines of you know human beings have unlimited needs and wants, and only limited means to fulfill them. So there's an element of rationing. Mm. So we try to figure out how these individuals optimize. You know, in some sense, given a budget constraint and given those unlimited needs and wants, how do they make decisions? Mm. And I think you, when you think about game economies, we're thinking about the same thing, or at least we're making those same assumptions. So we think about the player as trying to maximize something. And I think for many game economists, we start with the player as someone who's trying to maximize their set of incentives. So practically, this would mean they're trying to like maximize their progression. So for every unit of effort, an individual or player makes into the game, how can they maximize their return or their utility? And mm. again, utility isn't just like revenue because many mm. of these games don't pay out revenue, yeah. but it's the satisfaction they get from the game. Yeah. And in many ways, that's them consuming content. So they're trying to okay. consume the main content pipelines. So if you think about match three, they're trying to consume levels. Mm. Think about Call of Duty, I think they're trying to consume kills perhaps. Maybe that's yeah. one way to think of it. Uh, but they are trying to consume something. 
And so how do you measure that satisfaction? Is it through the consumption or do you have that other little thing that, that measures it? Well, I think you, you try to do causal inference, right? I, I, I did a thing. What was the outcome? I think more practically, again, you know, I don't want to escape my, my own set of constraints. But, you know, when you pick a metric, you're still picking a theory. Hmm. So if we're to pick about like the metrics that we try to measure, well, we first of all try to have a control group. So hmm. we say, OK, we did something. Well, let's not do that thing to a given group of people and let's compare the two groups hmm. so we can kind of control all the random variation that might happen. Happen. So we can focus in on one change we made and what that causal effect was. Mm. And I would say like that seems to be a pretty effective strategy for figuring out how all these things get pieced together. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You're, you're teaching me a lot here, so uh, I'm probably going to need a little time to to you know absorb it all. But I'll get back to that later because that's super interesting. And and so on that note, how do you what what makes you categorize? Okay, this is a bad game economy or a good game economy. I know it's a super simplistic way of putting it, but how do you do that? There's probably two things which which are interesting for, in terms of game economy. So if you think about monetization, okay, well, is it making money and yeah. is it making money on a per unit basis? Yeah. Uh, do we also think this is scalable? Like yeah. the other thing that's really important is when you think about like how you're making money, okay, mm. well, what's the cost associated with that? I've been very much into like supply chain economics yeah. recently and just realizing that one of the ways you win at this is you make more widgets, mm. make more widgets. What is, <laughs> what is Epic really good at in mm. Fortnite? They make a fuck ton of widgets. They make a lot of shit. What yeah. is Call of Duty really good at right now? They ship a fuck ton of bundles. Yeah. What is King really good at right now? Well, they ship a shit ton of levels. Yeah. Like content is king. So like how can we ship a shit ton of content seems to be really important. So when I think about the game and how it makes money, okay, what are these content pipelines and how expensive are they? So to give you like a really simple example, 4X game, as we were mentioning, that is something that has something called peace shields. Yeah. Peace shields cost nothing and they protect you from 24 hours from being attacked by other players yeah. and they cost a certain amount. You almost always need to have a peace shield on yeah. in a 4X game. Yeah. That is something that costs the developer nothing and is repeatable. Like mm. The amount of money that peace shields have generated for 4X games could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. just looking at the whole genre. Yeah. So I would think a lot about marginal cost, at mm. least these days, and how that is connected to your revenue or not connected. Yeah. Do you think a, a, a good game economy has to scale? And by, by that I mean if users enjoy it but the devs aren't making money, is that a good game economy? or, or It has doesn't sound sustainable promise? to me. It's I think Web3 knows this more than anyone else. That's, yeah. I mean, look at it. If you want to make flashes in the pan, you've mastered that. <laughs> but I mean, if you want to build a, sta uh, you know, a, a stable product, yeah, you need to be sustainable like by yeah. definition. And I, I know that's – or let me ask you this because you mentioned game thesis earlier, and I know that's one of your big mm. uh, things this year. Is scalability the, the main thing? You know, or, or is and, – and my question, I guess my, my, my challenge to this is can you find – true innovation if you're only going for scalability? I guess that would be my question. You know, one of the things I ask in a game thesis, and it's the first question, is what has the market told us? Hmm. So I basically challenge developers to start by thinking about some sort of empirical market insight. And it isn't always like, okay, this thing, this specific genre works, so we're going to make more of it. Well, the first things still need to have been made for that thing to be successful. Yeah. So what have, what would they have relied on? And so you kind of work this relate, uh, you know, reverse chain logic, and it's like, okay, I kind of reject, I kind of reject this process. But that's not really what that question is trying to measure. Hmm. What that question is trying to measure is like, what's something that's really interesting that you could, you can play on, or that you can take advantage of. It's about trying to arm yourself with weapons. And so let's think about like how you can build the biggest inventory of weapons and the mm. sharpest ideas about what you're doing yeah. because you only get so many strikes at this. So like, let's think about how we're gonna organize those strikes and what your biggest weapon is. It's not always that apparent. 
So like to give you a small example of what has the market told us, well, we've seen a lot of games have virtual dual sticks on mobile. Yeah. So you think about Roblox, that's virtual dual sticks on mobile, dual analog sticks like you'd have in your physical controller. Mm. We're seeing this a lot more in a new game called Undawn, which is from Tencent. We covered this on Twig, which is, yeah. a, which is a survival shooter game. You see this in Call of Duty Mobile, which is another game that's done really well in the West, Genshin Impact, uh, Railstar. Yeah. We'll certainly have this on mobile. So mm. I think like there are certain things that are not necessarily, okay, we're just going to copy something else, but like, hey, this is interesting. Mm. There has to be a fire. This is this is a fire. Or sometimes, let's put this way, instead of, let's call it the soil. Like if you're going to plant beautiful revenue seeds, we yeah. need some we need some fertile soil. Yeah. I think that's pretty good yeah. idea to start with. No, absolutely. And and that's something where we've really been focused on uh, at Blockbars is building that soil, building that box, building the code with the mechanics that we can just add onto a lot of tools that are going to keep users engaged and are going to keep users spending resources or you know eventually tokens. Uh, super interesting. And you actually brought up with the joysticks, you brought up something that's kind of my next point. Are, are the economics of a game an actual mechanic or are mechanics part of the economy? Like how, how do you define, how do you blur the lines? Because for me, it's kind of the same thing, you know, the economics, uh, the economy, <coughs> is the, the, the mechanic. Yes, but I think you have to make an exception always for cosmetic economies because mm. cosmetic economies are very purposely not related to the game. Yeah. Now, in some like really broad sense, they are. Like, it does matter how much you see the cosmetic that you purchased or how much you peacock it, so to speak. Yeah. So, how many eyes are on you would be directly related to its peacocking value. Mm. But like by and large, cosmetic economies. The reason HD developers love them is because they don't have to make changes to the underlying product. They don't have to think about those engagement loops. But for the rest of us, you do have to think about those things, mm. and especially in Web three. You have to yeah. think about these things. Very few games have gone down the strictly cosmetic route. Yes. I mean, Blankos did for a little while, but if you're going to make deeper integrations, you're building infrastructure, you're building pipelines. Yeah. And those pipelines mean that they're going to have certain effects in equilibrium. So like when things settle, there is going to be a result that this economy tends towards when it's left by itself. And we've seen what happens when that answer is not compelling that you aren't able to continue revenue because there are fundamental miswirings or bad institutional rules you set up. Yeah, and also the sad truth is with if you go with the cosmetics-only approach, you are kind of like cutting down your own revenue source because at the end of the day, you, you can only sell a limited amount and your users are going to take that. That said, yeah, I'm, I'm, so I've never really gone down that road. I've always been more on the utility and the status and the power <laughs> element of things. But, but I, I do think some game will break it. Again, though, it has to be Fortnite level. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not really going to work. Uh, very cool. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. I do have a few other questions. Uh, what do you think are the parts of, of designing economy that, that, that make the games more fun, essentially? You know, one of the things I would say when it comes to game economics for Web3 is that we really can't make your game fun. And I know that sounds mega fucked up, but, you know, if I were to be honest with hmm. some of the... Uh, base economic modeling yeah. that you're trying to do it's trying to ensure that the game economy is sustainable that you yeah. have levers and tools so that when things happen you have a sense of being able to control it mm. and that's a lot of what i focus on when i think of trying to design web3 economies yeah. with a lot of different firms i work with is like how can we put more levers in this economy so if mm. we start to see bad outcomes we can put the skid on it yeah. and so to give you an example like axie came out and was able to uh, explode in a flash pan you know yeah. we're still kind of I I think I think Web three hasn't really learned the lesson of what that was. I don't mm. think there was a, there was a real lesson that came out of this, except some vague stuff about play to earn. It was a rebranding, but it didn't really affect the the minds of Web three. I think in the way it needed to. 
So like, how could we, if we were Sky Mavis, set up tools to be able to react to that if prices were going downward? Yeah. Could we modify the institution? And also like, what does this institution again tend toward without us interacting yeah. with it? Those answers need to be compelling. Yeah, and they're moving more to the publisher route. So so their their answer is more games. But I do agree, there there are things to do in the economy itself to they are those levers, right? And I, I think those were missings missing from a lot of the early uh, Web3 games, some of which I had a part in, you know, like there just wasn't enough ways to actually uh, inflate and contract economies, right? I mean, this is the number one problem that I deal with with Web3 is, okay, you have set up all these rules. You're going to be producing all these assets. If you just keep moving supply out, holding Mm -hmm. demand constant, P or price is going to fall. Yeah. And that's what you see happen is that you keep moving out supply. And yeah. there's been a lot of problems with MMOs, as many people might be aware of, with hyperinflation because, yes. okay, I need to go out and gather wood, but wood responds on a timer. Mm. And it turns out that timer is not synced yeah. with the frequency at which users consume that resource. Yeah. And when you think about also the real world economy, you have this when you have capital degradation. Mm. So like if you buy a t-shirt and you go out, you're going to degrade that t-shirt. It's gonna get a little bit worse. It might get a hole in it after yeah. enough time. Like mm. these things start to increase in probability yeah. at every T plus one period to get nerdy. Mm. So just think about this as a time series, it's gonna degrade over time. Yeah. And so like that's how things naturally get moved yeah. out of the economy. You don't have degradation in digital assets. Mm. A sword does not get worse. And you can build that in as a feature, which is a yeah. lot of what we talk about. Yeah. But that's something you need to think about is like, how can I turn things into consumables? And again, like it isn't just about degrading things. Yeah. There are other kind of approaches which are degradation, but yeah. appear different. Magic the Gathering only looks at the three most recent sets as the competitive set in mm. Magic the Gathering. So they're shifting demand. So rare, players die. Yeah. <laughs> like that sounds really fucked up, but it is a fantasy sport. I buy individual players. If that player is dead or yeah, has retired one, yeah. or, or retired, that perhaps is a more appropriate yeah. way to put it. They've retired. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish, I wish all soccer die. players the, the, the best health in the world. <laughs> um, but if they were to retire, okay, that card does yeah. not have any value anymore. Yeah. And that, that is actually a concept that we've always really been pretty hard on is the permadeath, the hero permadeath. So your heroes will die. You got to get married. You got to have kids. You got to have the beautiful Habsburg jawline and your kids to breed superheroes, you know. So where, uh, but again, I, 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 so I'm a big believer in like that artificial scarcity, but it is artificial, right? So it's, it comes down to us designers deciding this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And that is kind of the, the problem in Web3 is like you... You want this open system where everything's transparent, everything's fair, but in order to make a really good balanced game, you kind of need these designer gods that just decide whatever they want and do whatever they want. And that's been a really interesting challenge to navigate with our community and you know within our own team of like, how do we actually build a game that makes the economy fun, but at the same time is challenging enough to not be completely abused by the community, if that makes sense. No, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, to your point, you're trying to solve for flow. You're trying to f- solve for that optimal rate of consumption. So if I give someone too much of, if you're if you're king games and you give someone too many match three levels, they're going to eat themselves to death yeah. <laughs> and they're going to get to the level cap very quickly. Yeah. And they might not even want to get to the level cap because if you make things too yeah, easy, get bored. Yeah. they get bored. You got to remember, this is empirically observable. We've seen this in games. If things are too easy, players will churn. Yeah. So you have 
have to actually find that flow state. And even if it isn't a Twitch-based game where you might get sweaty palms like in Apex <laughs> Legends or, or League of Legends, you still need to find that when it comes to the natural rate of progression. Yeah. And just I get sweaty rewards. playing Candy Crush a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Not even time-based games. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Candy Crush makes me angry. But uh, I mean, you're right. When I win too much for too long, I get more bored than if I'm actually losing, which is pretty crazy. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I do have a few more questions, but I think we're getting a bit longer on the time. But uh, I mean, let me let me let me give you another chance to to uh, shit on Web three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> do you see a way out for the industry? Do you do you, do, do you see it actually adding value and working along with Web two, or mm. is all Web two going to have to become Web three, which I don't think you think, or is all Web three just going to have to give up and and become regular games? Look, I, I know this is perhaps too centrist, but I'm actually like Web blockchain agnostic, web, WebEx agnostic. You know, maybe it makes sense, maybe it doesn't make sense. I do think there are interesting things about Web3. I think the Web3 part of the industry is really poor at describing itself and being honest with itself because it has a lot of fucked up incentives. Like, okay, you hold an asset, you need the asset to increase in value. Anytime someone pokes hole, it holes in the value of that asset, it reduces your price. And remember, there isn't like a fundamental price to these things. Like normally in a stock, we think about a stream of dividends. Yeah. Well, it is the case if that NFT is a stream of dividends, which is a separate story. Yeah, But, but you, the, we're basically not allowed to do that uh, with the industry ish, the way it is. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a couple of you which is doing some interesting <laughs> things, some interesting lawyerly advice. Alluvium. Um, <laughs> but that being the case, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, to your point, like, can you make this as a liquidity machine? That's pretty interesting. Like, can you use this to fundraise capital? Okay, but you're just getting around regulation. So when is regulation going to come? And again, I'm not in favor of regulation for mm. a lot of these things, but like it is coming. It is going to be a cost. You're just going to be security again. Okay, what makes you an attractive security? Well, to make you be an attractive security, you need to generate revenue and ultimately dividends. Like that mm. is what a share price is. It's a stream of dividend payments. Mm. And again, there is no success here. Like the player numbers, for all active Web3 wallets, I was looking at Novic numbers was, mm. I think it was like maybe 500K. You know, don't yeah. quote me on that, but you know, for all of Web3, are you, f- you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, let's look at where that lands in a Steam ranking. Like we have Steam numbers that are public. You know, I don't even know if that's in the top 10. I think that's in the top 20 and that's as an industry. So you need to actually have a victory and get some real scale for any of these things to matter anyways. But if, if Web3 wants to win, I think to your point, it needs to at least try to play to its strengths and also integrate where it actually doesn't have a natural fit. Like if this is mm. just going to be infrastructure, which is another thesis I've heard, mm. that this is just how we're going to do payments, that this is just going to be natural in every game that will have a marketplace. It needs to be better than MasterCard. Right? It needs to be better than MasterCard. Yeah. And I can tell you using Coinbase is a pain in the ass. Like I sometimes get paid in USD from clients. Yeah. It's awful. I have all these waiting periods. Coinbase support is awful. Uh, getting this to different countries is awful, which sometimes I need to do. I'm an American and I'm living in Sweden. Yeah. Like just a whole flow of money is a pain in the ass. I'd much rather get a simple bank transfer than have to yeah. deal with any of this bullshit. So I would say like those are still fundamental problems that they haven't solved. They just keep claiming that this will happen one day. Again, it's yeah. so early. When is it going to be early? This is this is not happening right now. But yeah, stakes. I would at least go with stakes. Stakes are pretty interesting. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways, I do agree with you as much as I am a huge believer in the space and in the future of the space. But, you know, I have five years of data of user acquisition data where whenever you insert a wallet or even a free NFT claim into the process, you're your drop-off levels are brutal. Yeah. Like I'm talking like Genghis Khan brutal. <laughs> like yeah. Nobody survives. You yeah. Know? So, uh, and, so and people say make it invisible. Okay, yeah. but then what's what's but the then point? What's the point? What's the point? Uh, agree, I mean, let's agreed. look at Reddit. Like, uh, usual A16Z people came mm-hmm. out was trouting success of 
the um, the use of, of of wallets in some of these games that are that are behind the scenes. Um, but at the end of the day, like, what, what does that prove for Reddit? Like, they generate a lot of wallets. It was invisible to the user. Okay, I have an avatar that's a picture. Yeah. N- now what? What did did Reddit make a shit ton of money? I mean, sort of. They did some initial sales. Yeah. Okay, but that's but they're it. getting to a point where they're angering the community yeah, it, with each new sale. Th- this is what success looks like in Web three. Give me a break. Like, show me show me some real numbers. Show me something interesting. Show me Half Life two. Like we were talking about yeah. that. Uh, you know, as one of the things that broke Steam. Show me Angry Birds. Angry Birds yeah. was good on even paid mobile. Exactly. But show me something interesting. Yes, I get it's too early, but again, tell me when it won't be. Yeah, and and I mean you 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 put out the point that that's our thesis. You know, I, I'm not a believer in the thesis theory, although I'm getting in there. Uh, you, you're starting to convince me, but uh, essentially, I, I do I don't think abstracting it away is the solution because Google logins and all of that. It's only yeah, it's, it's a login, okay, but then they're still not going to care about blockchain. You know, yep. I, I do think what what's the solution is a game that's good enough. You know, we're working on one. There's many others in the works. Good enough that people are sticky, you know, staying inside the game. They're playing long enough. They're engaging long enough, and then you actually give them some reward in game to go and explore the blockchain part. And that's going to be really, really difficult because <laughs> it, it's like it would be the same as convincing a user to get a credit card in order to recharge diamonds in, in you know, a regular mobile game. But I, I do think that's the path. I don't have the answer for it yet. And as for when. You know, I think I think real funding in Web3 gaming started happening two years ago, you know, maybe three for a few studios. How long did Fortnite take? You know, it took eight years, right, <laughs> to get that going. I do think, you know, a five to 10 year timeline is not unreasonable, but I think we're gonna start seeing some projects that are maybe admirable challengers in the coming year. Look, you, you gotta hire game developers, Web3. This is the other thing I'll shit on you for. <laughs> hire fucking web game developers. Like you, you cannot come out this fresh with no game development experience. Like you're gonna yeah. need some piece of this at some level. Maybe it's an advisor. Yeah. Maybe it's a director of product. Maybe it's someone for marketing. Somewhere along the line, you're needing to interact with the real game world. I promise yeah. you, there are useful things that you can learn from to make your own product better. But right now, I'm not seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot of insularness and a lot of unrealistic expectations about what AAA and high quality development yeah, is like. That it I takes a with. lot of shots on goal. Yeah, and to your point earlier about a 3D pipeline, you know, that, that was one of my things before we started this whole block lore journey is like, told my co-founder like, hey, before we actually raise capital, we have to figure out our 3D pipeline because if we don't make it work, this is gonna fall flat on the face. And I think there are quite a lot of teams now who thought they could do something 3D and then now they're just not able to and the money's gone and there's no <laughs> no help coming essentially. So on that very sad note, but uh, excited because this is our first podcast and uh, I, I'm way, Thanks way- for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. I mean, this has been really challenging. I definitely feel humbled and uh, excited because you gave me a lot of ideas of how we're going to fix Web3. Oh, stop you. And uh, <laughs> I think you're the savior. You've, we've been oh, waiting for. oh, stop you. I, th- <laughs> I think there are enough saviors on Twitter. Uh, I think you need a c- couple couple less of those. <laughs> hey, well, we'll hear, we're here in case uh, they need us. But uh, yeah, plug yourself. Where, where do we find you? What other podcasts are you part of? Yeah, so I'm on Deconstructor Fun, which is an awesome uh, website that also does a podcast. It's called This Week in Games. We're available on all podcast platforms. I do my own podcast called Game Game Economist podcast, which is awesome with two wonderful co-hosts and Game Economists, Eric, who is at Star Atlas, I'm giving a little bit of shit, <laughs> and also with Eric, who is at Superlayer right now, which is doing a lot of a lot of interesting things as well. They're, they're just brilliant human
human beings. I'm just I'm blessed they they come on with me every week and and we put up with each other somehow. But it's been a lot of fun. And I also run a blog, Game Anonymous Consulting. But I would say the best way to to get at me is just be on LinkedIn. Uh, that's apparently where where some of this is. And I'm also on Twitter as well. I'm at uh, a concifer. Maybe we can put that in the show notes. That'd be that'd be cool to do. We'll do. Um, and I'm I'm sure I've got more hot takes this year. I think this is going to be a fun one. Perfect. Fun well, this has been great. And yeah, please come again. And uh, to our community, thank you. This has been the first pilot episode of Tavern Talks. I'm David Johansson. You can find us at at Blocklords on Twitter or at Lord of Blocks if you want to reach me directly. Thank you. Thank you.